So many people will probably have started to adapt something somewhere, maybe not very forward-looking, certainly not very long-term, but responding to things already changing around them. I think actually much more adaptation than has been documented has happened. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, Program Director Joseph Meikert talks with Martin von Ost about the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. Climate Change 2022, Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability was released last month, and Dr. von Alst is a coordinating lead author for Working Group 2. Working Group 2's contribution to the recent six assessment assessed the impacts of climate change at global and regional levels. It reviews the capacities and limits of both the natural world and human society to adapt to climate change. The report warns that rapid action is necessary to manage the multiple effects of climate change. Joseph and Martin talk about the impacts we are already seeing and what we may see in the near future. They talk about what this means for decision makers, what they can do about it. Here's Joseph to lead the discussion. Our guest today is Martin van Alst. Martin is a professor at the University of Twente in the Netherlands and an expert in scientific assessments of climate risk, how adaptation can help respond to those risks and how the evolution of our response to climate risk, both in terms of mitigation and adaptation, can help stem these risks. Very glad that he's here joining us today. Martin, welcome to the CSIS podcast. We're recording in March of 2022, and and there's a lot going on in the world. But importantly, the IPCC has recently released a large new report from the second working group on climate risks and impacts as part of the sixth assessment report process. You're a leading author of one chapter in that report, and that's because you're an expert in climate risk and, and impact assessment. How did the process go? And when you look at the evolution from the previous assessment to this one, what are the big key messages in this new IPCC report that you think are important for people to hear? Well, it's it's been a wake-up call even for scientists quite closely involved in this and, and quite familiar with the underlying literature to see it all coming together. And I think the big overarching message is that all of the risks that we already knew about are coming at us faster than we thought before. So at the same level of warming, we're more concerned. We're already seeing more impacts than in the previous cycle. So 2014 was the, the previous big assessment that we delivered we're seeing much more already happening around us. That includes all the big extremes that we've seen changing around the world, you know, the, the, the bushfires in Australia and California, the extreme heat in Canada last year, the flooding in the heart of Europe, you know, Germany, Belgium, killed over 200 people. But of course, also the humanitarian crises that the IPCC has confirmed and that we're confronted with in the International Red Cross or Crescent, where I lead the International Red Cross or Crescent Climate Center as, as another element of my, my, my job. Uh, so we're supporting all those operations around the world, and especially in these vulnerable contexts, at the front lines of the rising risk, people were starting to feel this already, but science now really confirms that that's already happening. We also updated the the risks that we're seeing coming our way, and indeed we're more concerned than before. So all of the sort of the known risks are are coming faster. Uh, We're also seeing limits to adaptation. So we thought we needed to spend much more effort dealing with those rising risks that are coming our way. We're now also seeing much more clearly but there are limits to how much we can adapt. And that, of course, underlines the need to limit the warming to tolerable levels as well. And we're seeing the, the risks getting more complex. So uh, I think we've all seen the stories the past couple of years about risks not just happening in one location or with, with just one, one hazard. But for instance, 
first a forest fire, and then a couple of months later, an extreme rainfall event that then leads to landslides after those hillsides have already burnt. So that's two hazards after one another. We're also seeing compounding risks where human systems have already become more vulnerable because of several shocks on top of one another, and then are hit harder by the next climate event because people are just left in more vulnerable positions. And we're seeing those risks cascade across regions. I mean, you may remember the 2010, well, it was a huge heat wave in, in Russia, which also reduced agricultural production there. We had similar climate events in Australia at the time, so poor harvest there, which then sent price shocks through food systems around the world. So food was more expensive in the United States and in Europe in supermarkets, but it also led to a food security crisis in Africa. So it's th those sorts of connections that are, that are determining how risks are playing out around the world. It's clear the risks are happening everywhere. They're widespread. They're getting more severe, but also they're getting more connected. And I think that's, that's an important message in terms of how we manage those risks as well. So that's a pretty bleak picture in some ways, but also I think a picture of hope in the sense that the report also tells us a lot about how we can manage those risks better. Risks are very much um, shaped by how we develop. So we are still putting more people and more assets in really quite exposed places where the climate risks are rising, but we're actually building cities in these pretty dangerous places without paying enough attention even to the current climate, let alone how it's getting worse. So if we do that better and smarter, there's a lot that we can, can still handle. So the report shows that there's a lot to shape in the near future that will determine how high those risks get but also as the warming gets too much, uh, that it will become hard to cope in some places. And some ecosystems will at some point be gone, including the, the services that those ecosystems provide to humans. Uh, but also in some places, it will become increasingly difficult to survive, particularly for already vulnerable groups. So an interesting example, for instance, is, is um, the heat wave in Canada last year, where you know if the same heat wave had happened in Las Vegas, probably almost everyone would have had air conditioning. They could just have gone inside, you know, and there's still vulnerable groups, even in Las Vegas, maybe homeless people living outside that might still suffer, but most of the population would be okay. In Canada, of course, they're not used to heat waves. So they didn't have air conditioning. They couldn't go inside. In principle, they can afford air conditioning, right? So they could go there and just buy air conditioning. Now we had a similar heat wave of over 50 degrees in Iraq at the same time, where people couldn't afford, couldn't all at least afford the air conditioning and also their electricity infrastructure has been crippled by the decades of, of you know, non-climate related disasters that they've had recently. So that also shows the, the difference in vulnerability. And again, a message of the report is also how we shape that vulnerability going forward will determine a lot of how bad it gets in terms of the impacts that we can expect. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, just on the Southern side of the Canadian border here in the United States. And you know, it's anecdote, but the heat wave this summer was incredibly punishing, right? And as you say, the city where I grew up in, is air conditioning is not commonly used. I don't think we had one in our house. And if we did, it was never turned on. But uh, I think it's really interesting to think about the mass of evidence that has accumulated in this report related to how the effects of climate are already being detected, at least in individual events or in particular places. Right. So we're one degree C into sort of human driven global warming. That's a result from the working group one assessment. Is it like popcorn? Like, is it like, you know, popcorn in a pan sort of popping in individual places where you're seeing events where there's an element of ex extremity that betrays historical analog or there is a precipitation event that wouldn't have happened before? And do we need to kind of like institutionally speaking or globally speaking? 
sort of reframe how we talk about climate change, less as a thing that's going to happen in the future and more as an ongoing process that we're starting to see the symptoms of. And we should just expect those to be more severe, more pervasive as time goes on. Yeah, that's very true. And I think there's several elements to what you're saying. So the first is climate change was always something of the long-term future, right? So we, we, we were talking about climate projection for 2100. Well, it's happening now. Secondly, we were talking about climate change as something that was a threat to the natural world primarily. So the iconic image was a polar bear in 2100 on a melting piece of ice in the Arctic, if that would melt. And of course, it's no longer just polar bears. It's us. Right? It's humans that are being hit already today. Partly, of course, we care about nature, but we're also feeling the effects directly ourselves already. And it's costing us. We're paying a heavy price in terms of you know more multi-billion dollar disasters than ever before. Now, those are getting there partly because of the climate change and partly because of all those assets exposed, of course. So there is something we can do about that. But the third element there, I think, is also that it's the shocks and not just the gradual trends. So maybe it's because I, I grew up in the Netherlands and sea level rise is a particular concern for a country that is already below sea level for a big part of its population. So, but, but we were thinking about climate change as a potential long-term threat of rising sea levels. And the response would be to raise our, our seawalls. And you know, there will be a price to that. So, but we thought we could just engineer our way out of that and then have the money. We were somewhat concerned about other countries that might not be able to afford that. You know, Bangladesh being the sort of iconic example, you know, Netherlands, we can afford to, to raise our seawalls, Bangladesh might not be. Well, what we've learned by now is it's not just going to be all predictable, long-term, gradual sea level rise. It's also, in our case, for instance, extreme runoff from the rivers flowing into our delta. And I mean, we've seen that with the bad flooding in, in Europe this summer. But um, so we're also creating more space for our, our rivers so that we can accommodate these larger peaks. And space, as you know, is in the Netherlands, it's a super densely populated country that comes at a huge price. Now, we, we're creating recreational areas so that we don't have houses or, or factories or so there. So it's okay. It's nice to have that recreational space, but you really need to think about it long-term to be able to do that. And again, it's not something that's standard in, its, in, in planning. It's also not something that's happening everywhere in the world yet. But thirdly, in the Netherlands then, we were thinking about, okay, then we've got the water from the sea, we've got the water from the rivers, and we need to be able to stay safe, get, get that water out. But the summer before last, suddenly we had a very hot and dry summer. So suddenly, instead of getting all the water out, we needed to retain that water in order to be able to continue to have our uh, high-density agriculture, for instance, which you know is one of our, our important export products. So there's farmers relying on that water, and suddenly they didn't have it anymore. And that, that I think, is, is speaking to that complexity of risks as well. It's coming in shocks, it's coming in surprises, but it's also managing multiple stresses at once, rather than just a single hazard, sort of, you know, techno fix for something we completely understand and completely can completely plan for as one solution for one type of problem. This is a systemic problem that is coming at us in different ways and a combination of trends and things that we can expect. For instance, those, you know, all those extremes getting worse is something we could see coming in the Netherlands, but also requires uh, solutions that work for all of those different things at once rather than just for, for one type of problem. So you're one of the lead authors on chapter 16 of this new report. And the title of that chapter is Key Risks Across Sectors and Regions. One of the things I think it's tough for people to understand, and I even struggle with this myself, is framing or sort of conceptualizing the shift from individual risk categories, right? Floods in the Netherlands, heat waves in the Pacific Northwest, the US, you know, extreme precipitation in, in Central Europe, as examples that we've already discussed. And sort of, I'll use a, a math phrase, integrating those over the whole globe. 
right? That these challenges, you know, they'll be felt differently in different places. In any one of them, climate might be a small aspect compared to existing vulnerability. It might be a small aspect compared to, you know, existing weather variation. But it seems like one of the real intellectual challenges is understanding that climate being a, a small risk factor over a lot of places suddenly makes climate a huge generalized risk. Do you have thoughts on that regard, or would you amend my thinking in any way? No, that, that's certainly true. Part of what this IPCC report is, does is, is put all those individual studies together. And I should say it's one of the areas where science has advanced a lot already on the so-called IPCC working with one side, so the physical science basis. We have many more of these studies where we can actually attribute the changes in the specific extreme events to the change in climate. So in the past, maybe 20 years ago, scientists were very conservative about this, essentially said we can only say something about changing extremes if we have a change in the pattern of extremes over a 30-year period and compare that to, to a similar pattern of extremes over a similar 30-year period 100 years ago. By now, we actually have statistical tools by which we can distill the, the trends in extremes for specific events that are happening now. And it allows us to speak to the reality of what many people are already experiencing as funny things happening, extremes they've never experienced before. And then asking that question, I mean, we get that in the International Red Cross a lot, you know, so this particular extreme, so is that due to climate change? And is it going to happen again? Or is it more likely to happen again? 20 years ago, we were really struggling from the climate science side to provide an answer. Now we much more often can, at least in places where, where the data are relatively good. So it's easier still in the United States or in Europe or in Australia than it is in, say, Africa or South Asia, where there's some of the bigger disasters do still occur, unfortunately. But overall, we're getting many more of those studies. And I think what the IPCC has done is put all of those pieces together, plus also the studies about things you know, that are still more the trend-like shifts. You know, We're seeing shifts in ecosystems. We're seeing fish species move in the ocean. So all kinds of other pieces of a big puzzle that then together tells that story of the global change that is happening at such a massive scale now. So we're much more confident about everything that's already happening. And we're also much better able to put all of those individual pieces back to that big story of anthropogenic climate change. Yeah, if I speak loosely, I mean, I think that you can develop this sort of bottom-up picture, starting with the vulnerabilities and in particular areas of climate risk, as opposed to a sort of a top-down, well, if temperature goes up 2%, 2 degrees, then we shall see this change in global GDP. And I'm very interested to watch this science develop around how those two kinds of assessment might start meeting in, at medium scale. I, I'm not sure what, where we'll fall. Maybe you have thoughts on that. Well, it's, it's pretty challenging. And, and I think one of the things we're finding is that it's almost that the top-down sort of modeling approaches that we've developed in the past are becoming trickier as we see more of the complexity from the richness of the picture we're seeing emerge bottom-up. Right. So if you ask me the question, for instance, what is the total economic aggregate damage of climate change? Right now, we're actually not putting a number on it, <laughs> even though there, there's quite a lot of studies. But if you, look, if you read the report, there's not one number about the, the aggregate economic cost. We're fairly certain it is, it is a mix of positive and negative effects at the moment. So there's, there's benefits to agriculture in far north, northern regions. It's gradually going get, to get bad for everyone. And certainly the aggregate is quickly getting worse. So we're pretty sure about the direction being bad, but what the exact number is, is, is harder actually, even though we've got so much more knowledge you know, than 10 years ago. Uh, and it's partly because what I was describing earlier about the, the huge complexity of uh, how those risks play out, often in very nonlinear ways that are just not 
just not captured by the models. You know how one flood in Thailand that is affecting semiconductor factories there is then hampering production in the Western United States is something that has never been in our models, but it's of huge economic consequences. And there's all kinds of effects like that that we now know are are increasingly important and that, that just weren't in our models. And I think the humbleness in a way that comes from the bottom-up aggregation of, of, of all those impact studies is an important element. It also, on the solution side, shows that many of the solutions are also not going to be top-down solutions, but they're going to have to be local solutions that are co-created uh, with a full recognition of all the complexities, including complexities that we won't fully be able to grasp and plan for. But we need solutions that are also going to be responding to what we see already emerging, responding to the scientific knowledge about the risks that we know are coming our way, but also retaining flexibility to remain a bit nimble and to course correct along the way as new things emerge. On all of those fronts, it's not good news in the sense that there might be things that we didn't understand that turn out to be a lot better than we had expected. On the most part, the complexity is adding to the risks. So I would be you know, expecting higher economic aggregate damages than what we had expected 10 years ago if you, were, if, if you would force me to come up with an estimate. Mm. But the honest answer is for many of these things, we, we really don't know the aggregate. We do know there's a lot more below the umbrella of the aggregates than, than we thought before. And if you want to then get practical about solutions, you often have, have to look much more practically, locally, regionally, and again, confront that whole set of issues together rather than think about single solutions. Well, we will keep Nordhaus on the bookshelf, <laughs> but we'll, we'll understand that the picture that is arising is just very different, right? And that, again, I think speaks to what I constantly try to evoke, which is that we need to change our thinking of climate as a perspective problem to an emergent phenomena. And that puts us in a position that is in part privileged because we actually get to measure and understand how this, how this phenomena plays out and puts us with some obligations about trying to reduce those risks. Let's talk about reducing risk. There's two ways about it, right? That we normally think there's mitigation, the reducing of emissions to decrease long-term risk. I want to talk to you about that in a moment. But first, I think this report has interesting messages on adaptation. And I'm going to read a statement from the executive summary and ask you to explain the heft behind it, if you would. The IPCC report reads, there is negligible evidence that existing responses are adequate to reduce climate risk in the section on observed adaptation." So when you think about adaptation as a general class of activities, what motivates that statement and what have we seen? I mean, that, that scientists speak for, we are way behind on adaptation as far as I can read it. Yeah, and it's the first time we've comprehensively assessed all the academic literature on adaptation that's already underway to really see what's going on. And, and it's, not, it's not a pretty picture, <laughs> to be honest. Now, that's partly because what we're looking at is probably a subset of, of the adaptation that is actually happening. I mean, first of all, I don't know how about you, but in the street, in the supermarket, or when I even when I talk to my family, you know, I don't use the word adaptation very often, right? I talk about, you know, climate risks that are hitting us and the fact that things are changing and we need to do something about it, but I don't call it adaptation. I don't think many people do in practice. So many people will probably have started to adapt something somewhere, maybe not very forward-looking, certainly not very long-term but responding to things already changing around them, I think actually much more adaptation than has been documented has happened. Mm. What we're typically calling adaptation is formally planned adaptation. And that's particular, particularly in international context under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the adaptation related to the international climate financing mechanisms. Now, partly because of the constructs we've created in those financing mechanisms about what can be called adaptation, 
you're looking at a lot of piecemeal project by project adaptation efforts that are relatively minuscule compared to the scale of the challenge that were documented, the, the risks that we're already seeing appearing, but also typically more single solution oriented, single hazard oriented. They have a storyline about a particular problem they're solving with a particular project. And I think one of the main stories about how adaptation should function is that often we need more transformational solutions, right? What I told you about the rivers here in the Netherlands, it's no longer a matter of rising the river dikes further, but it's creating more space to be able to buffer larger peaks. That is a transformational mindset shift in how we manage water from the rivers in our delta. And the adaptation evidence shows that we probably need to think much more often about those bigger systemic changes. And we're not seeing much of that happening in the observed adaptation in all of those small projects. So the main headline message I'm from the report is if you want to be effective investing in adaptation, this piecemeal project by project way using that little bit of adapt international adaptation finances isn't going to do it, right? We need to think about this differently. So let me try and summarize. Adaptation can take lots of forms. It can be families or businesses or, or whomever buying air conditioners in Iraq or in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, or it could be investments in public goods like water control infrastructure for a country or a region. And this report is showing us that at least on that latter category, we're probably far behind. Yeah, but we're also seeing a lot of evidence. So I think that's the counterpart to what you're describing from that, that overall assessment of, of what is really called adaptation and how much of that is already happening and how much of an impact that has on our current, current risk. There's a lot of documented, basically, risk management solutions that, that are shown to work, right? Mm. So the, the, the most iconic example, I guess, is early warning systems. Being able to get out of harm's way or move stuff out of harm's way when a bad extreme is coming is one of the most effective, super cost-effective, but also you know, in a humanitarian way in terms of saving lives, for instance, proven measure. I mean, in the 1970s, we lost hundreds of thousands of people in an individual storm in Bangladesh. Now, last year with a superstorm Amphan, we lost 124 lives. But that was because we successfully evacuated millions and millions of people out of harm's way. So that works. You know, we, we know those types of solutions. Interestingly, at least for a long time, we didn't call those adaptation to climate change because there were storms in Bangladesh before. So why do you suddenly claim that your early warning system is for climate change? You needed that all along. Well, the storms are getting more intense, sea levels are rising, so you know risks are definitely rising. An early warning system is among your best investments. It's probably not the only thing that's going to do it. You need multiple solutions together, but it is a very effective investment. And I think we're coming around to the stage where we're now calling out that whole suite of solutions that have already proven their value and saying, okay, so that is how we, how we need to approach adaptation rather than by single piecemeal projects to solve a particular, like say, you know, try and add 10 centimeters to a sea level, to a seawall, which in Bangladesh may not even exist in order to deal with 10 centimeters of sea level rise. Addressing that issue is a matter of meeting a need which is emerging. Is it a matter of money? Is it a matter of institutional design? Or is it all those things? Yeah, all of the above. It starts with risk understanding and risk awareness. And again, just to come to a very specific example, in, in, in the international disaster statistics, we've seen heat waves including in Europe, top the charge of, of the most deadly disasters. Whereas actually most Northern European countries, including risk managers in those countries, you know, national Red Cross societies in Europe said heat is not really a problem in the Netherlands or in the United Kingdom, for instance, you know, or, or Canada for that matter with their heat wave last year, you know, that's not such an issue here. You know, that heat waves, that's something for California and, you know, the, those guys get it hot. Here, it, it's okay. And actually it's because we typically didn't get them that we're so vulnerable. 
and it's killing thousands of people. I mean, literally, you know, I think it was 5,000 people uh, two years ago in, in the summer in Europe and mostly avoidable deaths. You know, it, it's a matter of ensuring that particularly vulnerable groups, elderly people, for instance, drink six glasses of water so that they don't dehydrate during the heat. Mm. And, you know, so again, simple messaging, having a good early warning system, getting the information about heat out, but also getting people to take it seriously. You know, in the Netherlands, people are still saying, finally, a nice day at the beach. <laughs> and then the Met Office comes complaining that there's another disaster coming our way. Well, this is not a disaster. This is a nice day at the beach. Well, actually, it is a disaster in terms of human mortality. I mean, we lost hundreds of lives. Again, avoidable loss of life. And not people that would die the next week or the next month. These were people that could have lived another 10 years, 20 years. So again, from a humanitarian perspective, that is a disaster. And it's it's super avoidable. And interestingly, again, I was involved in some cities thinking about their resilience to these changing risks. And the first, it's certainly in the Netherlands, for instance, you know, first impression of, of climate change, certainly for coastal cities, for instance, is sea level rise and we're going to be flooded. So how do we protect ourselves from it? Let's have the infrastructure guys here and let's protect ourselves from the water. Turns out heat was a much bigger killer and much bigger problem. It also turned out that the heat risk was highest in the dense urban areas where actually it, it turned out the poorest parts of the city were worst affected. Mm. But the city's subsidies for urban greening, which is one of the best solutions to keep your city cooler, were all going to the villa neighborhoods that were already very green because that's where people knew how to fill out the forms for the subsidies and where people appreciated nice green surroundings. And in the end, the early warnings that we were providing, I mean, those poor areas often have communities where Dutch may not be their first language. So public messaging during heatwaves, for instance, didn't reach those people, even though due to their socioeconomic circumstances, the risks of the heatwave were actually higher because they were they had pre-existing conditions that make them more vulnerable to the heat actually leading to bad consequences. So you saw a concentration of risks and an inability to have effective risk management, especially in places where it mattered most. And a solution then in the end being much more about community engagement in those places rather than being about a simple infrastructure solution. Well, surely that plays out internationally as well. The same storyline that the distribution of risks is is uneven. You must deal with that in your role with the Red Crescent and the director of their climate center. So what's the state of knowledge or how do we think about the international distribution of climate risk? what people are experiencing now in Western Europe or in the United States versus, let's say, in developing countries in the tropics, Africa, Southeast Asia, India, Pakistan. Yeah, so the the first message, I think, is these risks are everywhere. And uh, so there's been a time where we thought about this was a risk to nature in 2100. Now it's a risk to humans now. But then for many people still like far away from my daily reality type picture, right? So it's people in Africa or people in Bangladesh that that are suffering well. I think we've had a wake-up call the past couple of years. Those times are over. And if you look at New South Wales now in Australia with that bad flooding coming just a few years after those really bad bushfires in Australia, I think you know we're, we're getting those warnings everywhere. Uh-huh. But the report is also very, very clear that the biggest hits are happening in places where people have the, the lower resilience. And that often means just more poverty and also you know, less ability of governments to provide services. Again, taking the example of Bangladesh and that, that superstorm Amphan, for which millions of people were evacuated. Again, hyper successful in terms of saving lives. Compare that to Europe, where we had, you know, just by physical characteristics, a much smaller storm, killing more people, over 200 people in the center of Europe. But then if you look at the recovery after that, many of those millions of people in Bangladesh came home to find their entire livelihood destroyed and their economy suppressed because of all the damage of the storm. So, you know, how do they pick up their lives? And they're left poorer with less savings, less networks to, to fall back on 
for when the next shock arrives. Whereas in Germany, the people that did survive come back, you know, probably have savings of their own. There's community structures, but there's also government that's going to help them out. You know, government actually being very embarrassed about how things played out in the R Valley and making sure that businesses get back up on their feet. There's support, there's reconstruction of infrastructure, but there's also, you know, support to families and to businesses to, to get, get started again. So that sort of resilience is so much bigger in, in wealthier countries with well-functioning governments than it is in poorer places where people just can't afford that resilience individually or as a country in, in the case of Bangladesh, and even worse so in cases where government is itself struggling or even absent in terms of services to, to citizens, say in the context of conflict. So where we're seeing food insecurity, for instance, right now in Africa, in East Africa, there's literally millions of people at risk. And it's, again, an addition of really bad floods two years ago, followed by locusts, then COVID adding to the problem. So suppressed economies, rising food prices, now rising energy prices, and now a bad drought on top of all of that. While at the same time, you know, Somalia has been in conflict for decades, Ethiopia also big parts in conflict contexts. So how do people cope in those circumstances? And, and that's where the same climate shock has such a bigger impact than, than anywhere else. And sadly, again, looking at the effectiveness of our international mechanisms to deal with these crises, you know, we have in the Paris Agreement, one pillar around mitigation, one pillar around adaptation, one pillar around financing. If we look at the extent to which the financing is actually reaching what the Paris Agreement sets out to do, namely protect the most vulnerable, actually people in those sorts of contexts are not being reached at all with the international mechanisms that we're setting up. I um, One of the most interesting results that's reported in this chapter, I was reading it yesterday, for our listeners is in, reported in Table 16.5, but across many regions, we're actually starting to detect a negative impact on GDP or on economic growth resulting from climate impact. Could you spend just a minute explaining the literature that sits under that assessment? Because I don't know that it's commonly understood that we're starting to detect the signals of climate in reduced economic growth. Yeah, and I, I should also, you know, again, be a bit cautious about, you know, how widespread that is and how, so these are often case study based cases where we're seeing impacts in, in certain regions for, for a certain, for certain periods yeah. created by climate related impacts that, that then put a country back uh, on a, an economic growth trajectory. And it's primarily in, in already more vulnerable economies where also climate related sectors in a way have a bigger share of the economic productivity. You know, if you have a very services-oriented economy or, you know, high-tech production, then the climate shock may not make such a dent. Whereas if, you're, if you've got a very heavily agriculture-based economy, then, uh, then it's, it's very different, of course. So in those contexts, you, you, see it, you see it more heavily already. And of course, the signals emerge more strongly faster. And indeed, those are, are now starting to appear. But it's also going to be with ups and downs, also in those places. And coming back to an earlier part of our discussion, I think we should always be careful not to draw too straight a line between a couple of years mm. of this happening. Similarly to, well, the example I just mentioned in East Africa, you know, it was floods two years ago, it's droughts now, and it's often the shocks that are that are getting worse in, in both sides. And if you do simple economic projections about what happens to East Africa just with more floods or just with more droughts, uh, you're oversimplifying the picture. Oh, thank you. That's a really helpful explanation. We've got two more areas I want to cover, is even as we run short on time, if that's okay with you. Sure. You mentioned earlier boundaries to adaptation or limits to adaptation. What does that mean? Well, basically, it means that we're seeing that you know some risks are rising in ways that we can no longer adapt to. You know, we always thought about well, the, what I mentioned several times already. You know, ten centimeters sea level rise, add ten centimeters to a dike, and we're safe again. Similarly, you know, get more heat waves, get more air conditioning, and then we're safe again. 
Now, part of that latter example, of course, one thing that, that maybe we should discuss separately as well is, is the fact that responses can create risks themselves, right? If we're massively increasing the use of air conditioners, then that has a side effect of increasing energy consumption. So, you know, that's something to consider. But more importantly, if you cannot work outside, you have to be inside in your air-conditioned home, you lose something, right? And particularly if you have to work outside and that's your, your livelihood, something's lost there. So you could argue that that's already loss and damage, as it would be called in the UNFCC, but, but, but also just, you know, something gets gone. And in, in addition, there are limits to this. And, and we're calling part of these limits soft limits. So one example, I already mentioned the, the, the heat in Canada, where in principle, people could afford air conditioning. But at the same time, we had a 50 degree heat wave in the Middle East where people could not afford air conditioning. And in those cases, a soft limit to adaptation might be reached because people simply could not adapt because they can't afford the air conditioning. There are also hard limits where we, where we really cannot adapt anymore. And sometimes it's combinations of issues. So for instance, if you're raising seawalls, but at the same time, there's more and more water coming from rivers flowing to that delta, then at some point you need to get rid of that water as well. And there may be capacity limits to, to pumping systems that can do that, for instance. That'd be one example. It particularly also pertains to ecosystems. And of course, there's other pressures on ecosystems than only climate change, but and you can try to reduce those other pressures. So, you know, fish stocks, for instance, in the ocean, if you reduce overfishing, that may make those fish stocks more resilient to changing climate patterns, and they may be able to, to cope for a bit longer. But coral reefs are the iconic ones. They can't move. Quite a few of those coral reefs are threatened by other patterns, but quite a few also aren't. And we know that even ones that are undisturbed will find it very hard to cope with a temperature rise beyond 1.5 degrees. So beyond 1.5 degrees, we'll start to lose those coral ecosystems, including the services that come with them, right? So we're always thinking of these iconic atoll islands. For them, it's coastal protection. It's also food. It's the fisheries around those reefs. It's tourism. So it's their main source of income. So it's the, the entire island going under. But before that already, it's 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 massive livelihood systems that are going under. And again, those are hard limits in the sense that those ecosystems simply won't survive if temperatures uh, go up too much. And we're, we're going to be reaching more and more of those limits as warming progresses. And that's why there's a very strong dual message here. On the one hand, prioritize adaptation and do it smarter and better. But on the other hand, don't count on adaptation to be, to be your get out of jail free card, but also limit the warming because at some point adaptation is no longer a solution. I'm very glad that you raised the example of coral reefs because it's an excellent example of what I believe that in the IPCC parlance you think of as a unique and a threatened system, right? And one of the things that this chapter includes, and I think is like a jewel of the working group to effort entirely, at least it's been very helpful for me, is the sort of delineation of climate risks across a few different categories, unique and threatened systems, extreme weather events, the distribution of impacts global aggregate impacts, and large-scale singular events. And this, for our listeners, figure 16.15 in the report gives you this sort of assessment, gives you the IPCC's assessment of how the risks change across those different categories with different levels of warming. This gets to two questions. The first is, what's our state of knowledge in terms of how climate risk is going to evolve over, let's say, the next 30 years, where mitigation choices don't make a huge impact on climate outcomes in terms of like global temperature. And Corey's are a great example where we expect warming to rise to 1.5 C or in that neighborhood over the next 30 years. And so that system just comes under like high to very high risk if I've got my categories right. We're now also looking at a world post-Paris, post-Glasgow, where if you take the IEA's projection seriously, 
We're also thinking about warming at the end of the century between one and a half and two and a half degrees C, which is a lot less than when I started looking at this area 10 years ago. So how do you think about the risks across those different categories expressing themselves? And in particular, when the IPCC says, for instance, that the risks associated with extreme weather events transition to high risk somewhere between one and one and a half degrees C and to very high risk between 1.8 and 2.5 degrees C. What does it mean to switch from high to very high risk? And what will that mean in terms of the kinds of impacts that we've been discussing? So one thing that's interesting to observe is that those five reasons for concern that you're describing have been with us for several assessment cycles. So you can cross compare what is happening in each of these sort of aggregate risk assessments going way back, but, but, but in particular also comparing to 2014 when we did the last assessment or to the 1.5 report where we compared these sort of risk levels between 1.5 and 2 degrees uh, a few years back, just after the Paris Agreement. And basically what, what you see happening if you compare the previous assessment to the current one is that all those risk levels are reached sooner. So we're, we're basically at the same warming level. We're, we're, we're more concerned about the level of risk on all fronts, basically. And we're getting into the very high risk for all of those five reasons for concern that you mentioned for the first time. We didn't see those very high risk appear in all of the risk. So we, we introduced the, the purple category and the highest category of, of very high risk only in the, the AR4, sorry, in AR5. And uh, now we have it across all of them and we're, we're having it appear in the relatively near term in, in some cases. And a very high risk is, is in particular if there is limited capacity to adapt and if there is a high risk of irreversible impact, stuff that, that, that will get lost forever uh, if we reach those temperature levels. So that's, that's when we're, we're most concerned. So the yellow is when we're starting to see things appearing and we're concerned about climate change really harming us already. The high is when that gets severe and pervasive. And the very high is when there is, there's little we can do about it and stuff gets lost forever. And that's an important element because for most of these burning embers in their standard, standard way that, that you're seeing in that iconic figure, which also made it to the first panel of the summary for policymakers figure that, that you can find as well. Uh, I think it's SPM3 in the, the, the shortest summary. There, you, th those five reasons for concern are depicted with an assumption of low to no adaptation. So this is important to note. We, we can still do something about these risk levels, both by reducing the warming, but also by still trying to adapt as much as we can. But for these very high risk levels, part of what's baked into our concern that we're describing here with th that very high risk is that there is limited ability to adapt. So at some point, there's not much we can do. And I think those risks that we can't do much about are coming at us faster than we had anticipated before. Extremely interesting. Martin, I'm, I've learned a lot from you in the, in the hour that we've been talking, and I really appreciate your work here. Is, is there something that, that we've missed that you think we, you'd like to add? Well, one thing maybe that is worth noting is that the responses to climate change themselves are a new category of risk that we're concerned about. And, and I don't think we've really captured that to the extent that I would have liked. So I think this is going to be a major theme also in the AR7, the next assessment cycle that we'll be embarking on in a few years. It also cuts across all the three IPCC working groups. So one category of this is, is so-called maladaptation. And actually, there's a lot in this report already. So it's inadvertent rising of risks when we're trying to manage one climate risk and we're, we're aggravating another one. And for instance, what I mentioned about water management might be one example, right? You're, you're trying to be able to get rid of a lot of water to, to deal with more extreme rainfall, but then actually you're aggravating your challenge once you've got a drought. Another example might be increasing irrigation, when actually that might mean taking water out of a river. That means people further down the river suddenly have less water, even though they are also confronted with higher variability. 
Or another example, building a seawall to protect the city and actually that causing coastal erosion a bit further downstream, affecting populations that, that, that live a bit, uh, bit further down. So all those examples are well documented in this report. Again, require a systemic vision. But we're also seeing interactions between mitigation, so greenhouse gas reduction solutions and adaptation challenges. And an example would be biomass production that can threaten biodiversity, but can also compete with food production. Mm -hmm. So as food production is already threatened in a more volatile climate, we're now also competing with that food production by our efforts to produce biomass that reduces the warming. So in that sense, it's a good thing. But if it at the same time aggravates the climate risks that are already coming at us, we may be, we may be aggravating other problems. And an interesting message here is that because the problem is now getting so widespread and severe, the type of solutions that we will have to deploy to deal with the risks that are coming at us, but also to keep the warming, so to reduce emissions quickly enough to keep the warming manageable, the scale of solutions that we'll need to implement is going to be so big that those solutions themselves are going to become significant risk problems. Mm. And again, it calls for that systemic picture I was, I was talking about before. We need to take that really seriously. If we're jumping at uh, solutions too quickly, the scale that we're going to be implementing those solutions at may mean that we could be creating our own problems. And I think it's, it's a big warning sign about where we're at with the climate crisis. You know, this is, this is an existential issue now for the world. And the solutions what we have at our disposal are no longer easy ones. They're ones that will need to be carefully programmed together. Adaptation, mitigation, and development all need to be in sync to, well, basically stay within that window of opportunity that we still have to keep this world a livable place, but it's shrinking fast. Yeah, we've been studying those issues here in at CSIS in the context of the U.S. power system, because if you're transitioning the power system very rapidly to a high renewable state at the same time that you're trying to manage increased climate impacts or changing weather conditions because of climate change and a lot of adaptation and shifting demand, for instance, because of increased use of air conditioners as an example, all those things changing at once just sort of mean that re resilience is challenged. Exactly. And we need to change fast, but we need to think, think carefully about those systemic effects while we make those big transitions. Yeah. As you go out of sample, your previous experience with like other hazards, maybe less informative. Martin, this has been a really great conversation. Where can our listeners find more of your work? So you can go to the website of our Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center, which is www.climatecenter.org. My Twitter handle is MKVAALST. And for the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center, that's RC Climate. Thank you kindly, Martin, for joining us today. And we wish you well. Thanks to Dr. Von Alts and to Joseph for walking us through those key issues of this most recent IPCC report. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy, and thanks for listening.